0: Welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry, bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubel, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a woman who discovers a little too much about her family history. Please enjoy
1: Sunken. the moment I heard a knock at my trailer door, I had a sinking feeling. The clunking thud of a fist against aluminum filled me with an immediate sense of dread. I wasn't expecting company, and in this neck of the woods, people don't just stop by unannounced. I pulled back my thin linen curtain to peek outside. A tall, balding man with narrow features stood outside at the foot of the steps leading to the door, sweating through his suit jacket. He noticed me through the window and smiled immediately but the smile never went past his eyes. Fake. Hello. Hi there, miss. Are you Jennifer Swell? He yelled. Depends on what you're here for, I shouted through the closed window. The name's Leonard Claire. I come bearing unbelievably good news. Hesitant to open the door, I cracked open the small window, allowing my voice to travel. He reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a large manila envelope folded in half. Are you aware that you own land in the Lumiere Basin? There was something about his crooked posture and odd demeanor that screamed snake oil salesman, but I'd be lying if I said he didn't pique my curiosity. My horoscope had mentioned good things coming my way this week. I cautiously opened the door and invited him in. He nodded in thanks and stepped inside. I offered him some cold sweet tea and waved him towards a chair. He was awkward, as if something about my home made him uncomfortable. I watched as he surveyed his surroundings. His eyes lingered on an old drawing my mama made when she was young. I found it after she passed, buried deep in an old trunk full of her belongings. That's my grandfather, I told him. He stepped closer to get a better look at the pencil sketch of an old man waving with a three-fingered hand, the middle and ring finger missing at the knuckle. He drew it? No, my mama did, of him. At least that's what she wrote on the back. She did that one too, I said, pointing to another frame with a detailed drawing of a farmstead. Leonard lingered on my grandfather with a strange look of familiarity. Apparently he lost them fingers learning to till the fields. He wasn't born a farmer, but my mama always said he sure as heck died one. Leonard turned back, forced a smile, and then took a seat across from me. Sounds like a wonderful man would well, no, never met him. He died long before I was born. He leaned forward and placed the envelope on the table between us. Well, that actually brings me to why I'm here today. As it turns out, your grandfather owned that farm he worked on. I took a sip from my own tea. I'm aware. Leonard shifted in his seat. Really? Because it wasn't easy to find you. There's no record of transfer. Well, I didn't know I owned it. I just knew that he did. He looked surprised. Oh, okay then. Well, he left that land to your mama, and thusly to you. And considering we come to an agreement today, I plan to buy that land off of you for the generous offer of... No, I interjected. But you haven't heard the offer. I don't need to. I've got what I need, and I'm happy with it. And if it meant enough to my mama not to sell, I'm sure it has some value to my family. Leonard looked around my trailer, searching for signs of other life. "'Then he pulled out a checkbook and pen and began to scribble. "'If I could just make—no,' I said, "'mustering the warmest smile I was capable of. "'I can assure you, ma'am, the land as it is, it's worthless,' he said. "'Well, it's worth something to you,' I countered. "'Now, if you wouldn't mind, I have some chores I need to attend to.' "'He stood, dejected and confused. "'He pulled out a business card from his jacket pocket "'and placed it on the table.' Well, if you change your mind, he folded the check and placed it with his card on top of the manila folder lying between us. I'll be sure to let you know, I smiled. He nodded, acknowledging that there was nothing more to say. On his way out, he glanced over to the second drawing my mama had made, the one of the farm. His eyes lingered on it, studying it, and then he looked at me with a snide grin. No need to contact me. I'll be notified when the check is cashed. I cleared my throat and he flashed another predatory smile before stepping through the door into the sweltering heat. That night I dreamt I was adrift beneath the stars. I looked up from somewhere deep underwater. The motion of waves distorted the tiny specks of light above. I awoke feeling more rested than I had in years, but undeniably curious about the land that Leonard had mentioned. My mama had never revealed much about her life before she was adopted and I wondered if she even knew that she had inherited anything. All I knew about her life before the death of her parents was that she was happy. It pained her to look back on those days, so it was rarely talked about. Along with the sketches that I'd hung on my wall, I found a few notes she'd kept from her days in school. Everything painted the picture of a content young girl. But all that changed when she was 14. I don't know the circumstances, but from what I gathered over a lifetime of comments here and there, Both of her parents died suddenly while she was away from home. How it happened, she never said, but it was clear my mama carried a lot of guilt over it, a guilt that never subsided. I can't say for sure, but I believe she may have been visiting my father, who worked at a grocery store in the next town. She was placed in foster care shortly afterwards, and I know very little about that time in her life, though my father insinuated that it was very rough on her. They married when she turned 18. I believe it would have happened sooner, but her foster parents didn't support the relationship. I never did meet them because my father made sure of it. For some reason, despite the fact that her foster parents saw it as good Christian charity to adopt a young black girl, they were averse to my father's native bloodline. Nonetheless, the two of them defied her foster parents and married anyways, and then moved two states away, and mama was barely 20 when I was born. Most of what I know about both of their lives starts there. Anything that shed light on who they were before that is a gift. That's why I treasured the contents of my mama's trunk as if it were fine china passed on for generations. Heirlooms were scarce in my family, so her tattered drawings and dusty keepsakes meant the most to me. I opened up the manila envelope that Leonard had left beneath his business card. Kenton Industrial Farming was printed in bold black letters just above his name. Inside the envelope, there were no pictures or maps. While there was no indication of what state the farm was in today, there was an address, or rather coordinates. And when I looked up the coordinates online, the location of the property was in the dead center of the Lumiere Basin. At first, I was confused because it seemed that there was water covering most of the area. But no, I was looking at it right. The coordinates were definitely under a body of water, Lake Lumiere. I kept digging online and it seemed that the lake covered most of the basin, though each year it seemed to be in a slightly different shape, always smaller than the one before. I wasn't sure what this meant, but I planned to find out. I was retired, widowed, and without kids. I had all the time in the world to uncover the truth. The drive was long, filled with stretches of nothingness. It gave me time to reflect on what this discovery might mean for my own heritage. I wasn't interested in the land or the money. The real value was in the stories that I hoped it would tell. I hoped to learn something about my mama's people, about her parents and what happened to them. About halfway there, I reached the turnoff from the main highway. While the road was still paved, it had eroded from two lanes into one. The edges had crumbled into the dry dirt that lined both sides of the long forgotten road. The drive grew silent, with no cars or signs of life in sight and eventually I even lost radio signal. After a couple of hours on windy back roads, the water crept into my vision like a mirage, shimmering in the distance, only it didn't disappear as it neared. The white, sandy shore gave way to what seemed like an endless sea stretching towards the horizon. This was Lake Lumiere. For miles, the tattered old road ran along the coast of the lake. I passed dozens of skeletons of old homes and buildings collapsed on its shoreline, some that seemed half-submerged in the ground like shipwrecks. I passed a faded billboard for a long-abandoned yacht club advertising the wettest bar in the desert. In the distance I could see a cluster of structures, not yet destroyed by the elements. I approached the first open business that I'd come across so far and turned my car into the dusty parking lot of a bar. The asphalt had been restored and the bar, a mid-century structure surrounded by impossibly tall palm trees, was old and somewhat decayed. But the antique marquee remained surprisingly maintained. The bright painted letters read, Welcome to Bombay Beach, above a dated depiction of a woman water skiing. Beyond the parking lot and the bar, off to the left, there was an open gate that led to a couple of old campers. To the right, there was a path down to the frothy lake shore. Nowhere did I see a living soul. As grimy as it looked from the outside, the bar still felt as welcoming as an oasis of civilization, a safe haven in the stillness. The moment I opened my car door, the oppressive heat overwhelmed the air-conditioned climate of my car. I found it hard to breathe. All around me, the air danced in waves of heat reflected up from the scorching surface of the blacktop. The hot waves further distorted the ruins around me. I imagined that this is what the apocalypse would look like. The heavy door of the bar opened with a cool rush of air and the relief of a dark room. The inviting smell of fried food and spilled beer drew me in, reminding me of road trips I used to take with my husband. I was greeted by the soft static of a classic rock station struggling to come through the old radio sitting atop a broken jukebox. My eyes were slow to adjust, but I could make out the shape of a slender old man sitting at the bar and a tall, full-bodied, dark-skinned woman standing behind it. Neither of them seemed to notice me at first, but as I looked around to see if there were any other patrons, the woman at the bar shouted, "'Welcome, honey!' she paused from drying a mug to wave me in. "'Hello,' I said with a wave back. "'What brings you to these parts, baby?' she asked as I took a stool at the far end of the counter. Oh, nothing. Nothing really. I just I just happened to be passing by, I responded. The man at the end of the bar chortled at my response. All right, whatever your reasons, we're here to serve you. What can I get you? I replied, it's so dang hot outside. I usually don't drink, but a cold beer sounds really good right now. She picked the mug back up and held it to the tap. Sure, the days are hot, but the nights are cold around here. you just got to survive till sundown. She tossed down a napkin on the counter and placed the beer on it. I settled into the stool and listened to the quiet hum of the air conditioner rattling between songs on the old radio. Everybody seemed comfortable in the silence. My eyes were drawn to the bar's walls and the news articles and photos that adorned it. Scenic pictures of a bygone era painted the bar in a very different light. The once lush green landscaping outside had turned to dust, leaving nothing but those tall palm trees. Somehow they'd survived. The dilapidated booths were once populated with beachgoers and boaters, but now they sat cracked and empty. So, said the old man at the bar, where were you headed that you happened to be passing by? The bartender leaned on the counter towards me and said, Actually, you know, you look really familiar. Have you been here before? I felt sheepish, like I'd been caught in a lie. No, uh, I haven't, actually, but I'm just visiting, I smiled. She continued to peer at me intently with her warm brown eyes. "'What on earth would make you want to visit here?' "'Well,' I pulled out the envelope. "'Apparently I own some land in the Lumiere Basin "'and I thought I should probably see what it looks like, "'if I can find it, that is.' "'A loud laugh erupted from the end of the bar. "'Hunched over, the man turned his head to face me. "'Well, did you bring a boat?' "'It was clear that he was poking fun at me. "'Excuse me, are you saying it's across the lake?' "'I asked, playing dumb. "'The bartender shifted her weight "'and tossed a towel over her shoulder.' Well, what Hank is trying to say is, you passed it on the way in here. Lake Lumiere is the Lumiere Basin. Acting confused, I slid the contents of the envelope onto the bar. But he said it was farmland. At the end of the bar, Hank swiveled in his chair to face me. Leonard hit you up, he asked. I nodded. The bartender sifted through my papers. Well, he didn't lie. It used to be farmland. That lake ain't natural. She pointed to the back wall, to a collage of old photos of a small farming community, and every single person in every picture was black. Used to be Lumiera. Those folks, she hesitated, pointing to the pictures, they set up home in the Lumiere Basin and damn near squeezed water from a stone. The only reason they were sold the land in the first place was because it was thought to be unfarmable. But these folks proved them wrong, prospered even built a whole damn city, schoolhouse, library, town hall, church, and two different cemeteries. What happened? I asked. (sighs) Jealousy, she sighed. She poured me another beer and explained that the town had been built up at the turn of the century. It became a haven for poor black families seeking refuge in the West. The farmers managed to bring life to the dusty soil by hard work and a little bit of luck. In what equated to a miracle at the time, the farmers were able to convince the Imperial Irrigation District to divert some of the water from the Colorado River to irrigate their crops. This turned the worthless dirt into fertile soil in a matter of months. The woman paused in her story to ask me my family's name. Benson, I replied, and she nodded and turned back to the pictures behind her. Charles Benson, she said, as she pointed to a fuzzy black and white image of a man next to a tractor. Yup, he was well known in these parts. She took down the picture and put it on the counter in front of me. And for the first time ever, I saw an actual photograph of my mama's father. The woman went on to explain that the town prospered and grew thanks to its isolation from the west coast cities and the large amount of desert to the east. Eventually though, the white farmers from the nearby Central Valley grew tired of sharing the Colorado water with the black farmers of the Lumiere Basin. The official story was that it was built up silt causing undue pressure, but it was widely known around those parts that when the Alamo Canal Dam suddenly burst, it was no act of nature. It was also no accident that the disaster coincided with the largest storm the basin had seen in a century. The result was a flash flood that filled the basin without warning, submerging everything in only a matter of hours. By sunrise, the town was gone, and Lake Lumiere stood in its place. I already knew the answer, but felt compelled to ask, what happened to the people who live there? They're still down there, Hank muttered with sadness in his voice. I shot the woman a look and asked with a small voice, do you know if if my grandparents made it out or or are they the woman reached out and put a hand over mine oh baby no farmer benson and his wife weren't found after the flood when i stayed quiet she continued some of the folks made it out alive and tried to make the best of it but after losing everything of value they sold what was left of the land that they had the coastline so other folks came in and developed it making it all glitzy They opened businesses, a yacht club, they built new houses and farms. Hell, there was even a seaside restaurant on the water. You can still see the foundation. Some of the old Lumiere residents stuck around and worked at the clubs and businesses that they no longer owned, but even that didn't last long. I think maybe one family stuck it out till the 80s, but eventually they left too, with most everyone around here. I took it all in and then asked, they're still down there? Stuck on that one particular detail. Hank polished off his beer and replied, Well, that's why they say it's haunted. That was when they told me about the Lumiere ghosts. They told me about bright orbs hovering over the water on moonless nights, pale specters wandering the beach, and familiar faces that returned to the bar for a drink years after they had died. The waters of Lake Lumiere had claimed many lives and continued to do so long after the first flood and with each death, another new specter was added to the roster of haunts. After all, how could the ghosts of people claimed by the lake leave, said Hank? Since their bodies are still down there, heck, their homes, their entire lives still are. Hank went on, enjoying my rapt attention. They say if you go diving, sometimes you reach out and you feel an arm, and holy damn, sometimes it feels like they're reaching back. From a hundred years ago, I gasped. Hank laughed before taking a sip. You see, the cold mud down there preserves them, especially in the deeper parts. And some of those bodies ain't so old. People go missing on that lake all the time. All that debris down there, the houses, barn, trees, the damn bridge even, all that catches up boats and swimmers, causes all kinds of trouble. Accidents happen, often. From there, the conversation dwindled into small talk about the weather and other things to do in the area. I was feeling depleted by the trip and the talk and ended up ordering a fried bologna sandwich slathered in mayonnaise, something my mama used to make for me. With my belly full and sunset approaching, I felt an urgent need to see the water before it got too dark. Hank offered to walk with me, so I thanked the bartender and we left the bar together and headed right towards the shore. I was only a few feet off the pavement when the smell hit, the dull yet pungent scent of rotting fish. What I had thought from a distance was a pristine, sandy white beach was in reality something far from that. Fish bones, bleached white by the sun, covered the shore as far as I could see. The old man saw my face and explained that salt had killed everything in the lake. Without a fresh source of water, the toxic runoff from the new farm's irrigation only added to the already inhospitable nature of this man-made lake. Without a natural source to refill it, the lake seceded more and more every year, reducing the water and further unbalancing the delicate ecosystem. And so, scores of dead fish washed up every so often. Hank pointed at a distant speck across the water. That out there is him. Leonard Clare, he spit tell me about him, I prodded. His weathered face wrinkled up as he told me about Leonard's arrival at Lake Lumiere a few years prior, and how he'd set up shop on the first plot he was able to purchase, far on the other side of the lake. The county had immediately signed off on his plans, so he had brought in all the pumps and equipment needed to begin draining the lake. The few remaining residents were never even consulted, and many weren't even aware of his presence until they started getting offers for their properties. Only a few sold, but everyone agreed that there was something off about this strange man from the city. He claimed to be upfront with his intentions, but the trust just wasn't there. What happens when it's fully drained? Well, then we'll have two ghost towns out here, he laughed. But then that's if he ever manages to drain it. Suddenly, something inside of him shifted. His entire demeanor hardened, like he became aware of an impending danger, unseen by anyone else. His gaze was on the still, dark body of water before us. I just don't think they will let him drain it, he added. They? I asked. He winked at me and spread his hands out towards the lake. They, them, all them people who never got to leave. I felt a shiver run through me, followed by nausea that an entire community had drowned and no one, much less the government, had tried to retrieve the bodies. I thought about my grandfather and my grandmother down there, in the depths of the water somewhere. About my young mother, a child still really, returning to find her home, her parents, her entire life swallowed whole by the water. All because of greed and jealousy. I understood now why she never told me. The trauma and grief of it must have been unbearable. After a few long minutes of silence, Hank pointed to a canoe laying on the shore 50 yards away and said, "'Okay then, that's me. Gotta get back home. You be careful now. And young lady, welcome back to your roots.' Then with a wink and a smile, he slowly sauntered off. I watched as he pushed off the canoe into the water and row until he disappeared on the horizon. All the tiredness of the day suddenly hit me, but I wasn't ready to leave just yet. The nearest hotel was many miles away and I felt an urge to stay close to the water.' Out of habit from the years of road trips with my husband, I always packed an emergency sleep kit. I kept thick blankets and a pillow in the back seat just in case I needed to pull over for a nap. I'd done it so many times I no longer felt cramped or uncomfortable sleeping that way. No hotel for me that night, I decided. I would crash in the car. I made my bed and drifted off to sleep beneath a pile of warm blankets and memories of my husband. The dream crept in with such vivid detail that I thought I had awoken. I found myself standing before a simple stone church with heavy wooden doors that hung from their hinges and windows that had been shattered and left empty. Its steeple reached towards the stars while the bell rang with dull muted clanks. And then there was silence. Something wasn't right. The stars above me blurred and my body stiffened as the cold enveloped me. My eyes stung and I gasped for air but there was none. Instead, my mouth filled with salt. A voice, clear as day, whispered in my ear, You come home now, baby. I turned towards the voice, feeling a resistance as if time had slowed to half speed. I struggled to keep my eyes open as they burned in their sockets. I felt the firm grasp of bloated fingers wrapping around my wrist, pulling at my arm, digging brittle nails into my flesh. My blurry vision focused for only a moment, but it was long enough. A ghoulish face stared back at me, inches from mine. Pale white bone poked out from bloated dark skin, rotted like the fish on the shore. Lips hung by small bits of flesh in front of yellow teeth dangling from blackened gums. Jagged narrow slits in place of a nose just below two deep black pits where eyes should have been. The ghoul opened its mouth and hissed a single word. Maggie. My mama's name. I awoke the next morning, chilled to the bone. I was far from the warmth of my car, laying on the shore of the lake. I coughed, gasping for air, but with each breath my lungs stung with a burning rawness. A chill ran down my spine and I realized that I was soaking wet. My eyes adjusted to the bright morning sun as it reflected back off the water only a few dozen feet away. I pushed myself up off the ground, feeling broken, bleached fish bones cut into my hands. How had I gotten here? I must have sleepwalked, exhausted from the trip. I shook like a leaf because I was freezing and because I realized how close I had come to drowning. And as I struggled to cross the bones in the sand, I suddenly felt very, very thirsty. I stumbled across the parking lot to the bar, hoping to use the bathroom and get some water, but of course they were closed. They wouldn't be open for hours. I noticed that aside from mine, there was one other car in the far corner of the parking lot. A dull white utility van that had been rusted thin from the salt air. Its windows were tinted dark, making it impossible to see inside from where I stood, but I sensed eyes on me. I kept a careful eye on the van as I walked back to my car, and suddenly stopped when I noticed all four of my tires were flat, completely empty of air. I turned again to look at the van, my blood running hot and cold, knowing someone had done this on purpose. I climbed into the back seat of my car, peeled off my wet clothes, and awkwardly changed into dry things. I may not have been soaking anymore, but I was still frozen as I fumbled with my phone, numb fingers trying to search for a towing service. Places like this, beyond the limits of civilization, always have one very important, very unsettling thing in common. They have a complete and total lack of cell towers. I had no reception and no choice but to wait until the bar opened again to use their phone. I wrapped a blanket around me and leaned my head against a window. Before I knew it, I had dozed off. But not for long. I woke suddenly to a harsh knocking on the window. I jumped at the sight of Leonard Clare inches away from my face on the other side of the glass. He barked, Hey, what are you doing here? Did you come looking for me? Slowly, I unwrapped my blanket and got out of my car. In the hour or so that I'd fallen asleep, the air had grown hot as the sun climbed on the horizon. A few dozen yards behind him, the driver's door to the van stood open. Wait, no, I didn't come looking for you, but did you follow me from my house? I looked down at the tires of my car and back up at him, my rage growing. He shook his head and walked around me, his thin, awkward frame now silhouetted against the backdrop of the glistening lake. I did no such thing, young lady. Why would I follow you? I live out this way. I just came by this morning to check on my property. He waved towards the bar. What do you mean, your property? What, that bar? Yes, ma'am. I bought this land and everything on it, including that bar, five months ago. We're getting ready to tear it down this week. I looked towards the bar, and the building seemed like it had aged decades since the previous day. The bright, cheery marquee announcing a welcome to Bombay Beach was now faded and gray. The image of the woman water skiing, barely discernible. But, but, I stammered, why would you tear it down? I mean, people still go there. People still work there. Leonard screwed up his face and leaned towards me. Are you feeling all right, miss? Ain't nobody been in that place in 40 years. It took me nearly two years to figure out who owned it and convince him to sell it to me. And the only time I went inside was to clear the place out a few weeks ago. My blood ran hot and cold as I listened to him because I knew from the way he spoke that he was telling me the truth. So tell me again, he said with a scowl, what exactly are you doing here? An icy chill like a flood of water ran over my body and I fixed my eyes on him. I came here to see what was mine and to claim it back. He took a step towards me and I suddenly realized how alone I was there with just him and no one else for miles around. Before I knew it, he lunged, and I bolted around my car and kept going, down towards the shore, towards the same spot that I'd last seen Hank. I ran until I stood hip-deep in the lake, panting, frantically searching for anyone, anywhere to help me. But there was no one to be seen or heard, except for Leonard. "'You know how many folks done drowned here?' he said slowly as he walked into the lake towards me. I nodded. I knew. I'd been warned." I inched backwards with every step he took forward, but there was only so far I could go. I knew if I went a few feet deeper, I'd drown. Not because of something evil in the lake, but because I had never learned to swim. If you drown too, said Leonard, that would be such a shame, but no surprise to anyone, nothing at all suspicious about it. He reached out for me and then stopped. His eyes were looking past me, his expression having turned to terror. I turned slowly to look and behind me silently stood a dark-skinned man over six feet tall, broad as a bull with two missing digits on his right hand. The figure opened its mouth and hissed a single word. Maggie? The air turned thick and salty and I struggled to breathe. I turned back to Leonard, my body moving as if through tar. Leonard stood frozen in place, mouth agape, His pale white skin looked almost translucent. I watched his eyes widen as he, too, struggled to breathe. He tried to step backwards and slipped, crashing into the still water. A roar of flooding water filled my ears, reaching a deafening crescendo. Leonard's body twisted in the water. His limbs ripped violently in every direction. I felt the ice-cold grasp of the three-fingered hand on my shoulder. And then a voice whispered in my ear, This is home. Tonight's story is based on the many haunted lakes that dot America's landscape. You might be surprised to know that there are 53,119 artificial lakes in the United States. Many of them are small reservoirs that are meant to supply water to communities, but others are quite large. For example, Lake Mead, which stretches through Nevada and Arizona is 112 miles across at its longest point. Now, everyone's heard the saying you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, and for a few man-made bodies of water, sometimes you can't build a reservoir without flooding a few towns. In 1956, Georgia's construction of Lake Lanier destroyed more than 50,000 acres of farmland and displaced more than 250 families, 15 businesses, and relocated 20 cemeteries along with their corpses in the process. Before the lake's construction, the town Oscarville existed in its place a predominantly black community, it was the site of the 1912 racial conflict of Forsyth County, which resulted in the displacement of all 1,100 black people from the entire county, rendering Oscarville a ghost town. In addition to Oscarville, the land that now sits at the bottom of Lake Lanier was previously made up of forest and farmland. Before the lake was filled, construction crews felled the treetops, leaving tall stumps to remain in some areas just below the lake surface. And all of this created hazards that would surface as the water levels dropped. Now, since the lake's creation, it's been reported that 700 deaths have occurred on its waters, many of which are said to be strange, unexplained, and unsolved. Roughly 200 of those deaths have occurred since 1994, and at least 27 of those missing have yet to be found. Divers have reported finding unsettling ruins of streets, cars, walls, and houses still intact inside the lake those relics lay at the bottom of the lake like an abandoned ghost town waiting to resurface. And because the shoreline keeps receding, there's been an increase in both boating and swimming accidents. Lake Lanier has reportedly seen more than 500 boating accidents, which only adds to the treacherous wrecks just below the surface. Fueled by these stories, many people have reported seeing ghosts roaming the lake's shores. Each specter is tied to their own tragic accident. From the one-handed woman whose car crashed into the waters to the lonely boatmen who capsized near the shores, these ghosts all have their own stories binding them to the lake. To this day, visitors still claim to hear haunting sounds and disembodied voices emanating from the murky depths. Ghosts aside, if you'd like to visit the bone-covered beaches described in tonight's story, you're in luck. While it might not be haunted, the shores of Bombay Beach on the Salton Sea in Southern California offer the same haunting shoreline and abandoned buildings that we described in the story. In many ways, the Salton Sea has become a symbol of death, both literally and figuratively. At one time, the real-life Bombay Beach hosted the likes of Frank Sinatra, the Beach Boys, and Bing Crosby, but after flooding in the 1970s, most of the town was abandoned. Shortly after, the lack of a clean water source, an increase in fertilizer runoff, and many other issues created a worst-case scenario for the lake which resulted in a mass die-off to the local wildlife. Evaporation in the desert heat further concentrated the salt, transforming the once thriving lake into an inhospitable body of water. Yet, even with little left to offer, the Salton Sea still has a few residents living on its beaches. Today, the ruins of Bombay Beach still stand as hollow structures like the fish bones that line the lake shores. In all accounts, these man-made bodies of water share a common theme, in one way or another. They are haunted by their past, and by the sacrifices that were made to create them.
0: Tonight's tale was written by Jay Richardson. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhary and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.